You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D-O-T-J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late-night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. It's time to grab a glass before its last call. Dean Firth, top sommelier at Nagazawa, takes us inside the secret high-end world of sake and explains the mind-blowing craftsmanship behind bottles that sell for thousands of dollars. Damn, it's good to know, Dean. Listen up. Cool. Hey, we got Dean Firth here today. Uh, he is a psalm at the legendary Nagazawa, considered by many to be the top sushi restaurant in the country. New York Times critic Peter Wells gave it four stars. It's got a Michelin star. Uh, and uh, so it is the place to go. So um, I love your Instagram uh, uh, call name. It's uh, Grand Crew. Jew. Jo- Grand Crew Jew, which, yes. by the way, you have to trademark. It is such a great fucking name. I don't know if you want to open a restaurant down south anytime soon, yeah, right. um, but what a fantastic uh, call. Thank you. So that was, um, <laughs> I, I like it as well. And that, that nickname came from working at Boulay as a, a floor psalm a couple of years ago. And um, a, a guy I worked with, Michael Peltier, who was at, um, at Robuchon for a bit, um, and I now believe is working for Vance Servant. Um, you know, he as stepping in into the a very French restaurant as the first American psalm in a number of years. And as, you know, a 25 year old, I definitely caught my lashings at first, especially from him. Um, and there was, there was one night where, you know, he'd always just point out bottles that he would challenge me to sell and kind of pinpoint um, so he could taste them as well. And um, there was one night, I think it was 02 Le Clos from Dovisat and then 09, mm-hmm. um, I forget which bottle of Vone it was, but it was from uh, Monjard Mounieret. Mm-hmm. Um, think it was brulee if i'm not mistaken um but he's like i want to taste this and i want to taste this this guy's right for it sell it and you know stepped up and finally had my flow down and um you know i walked back up from the cellar with the two bottles in my hand and kind of caught his eye and he he like looked at me and he's just like the grand Kuju has arrived he is here <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and then it kind of stuck since that's, then but yeah um, it's gonna it's, it's it's lyrical i believe so it's very lyrical uh so where did your love of food come from um uh, I mean, I, I grew up in New York City. I'm a born and bred uh, Upper West Sider, and hmm. you know, my whole family basically still lives within 10 blocks of each other in that neighborhood. And um, I was fortunate to be exposed to, you know, not just fine dining, but restaurants of all types um, from a very young age. And um, the Upper West Side was one of the, the epicenters of Japanese cuisine and sushi, specifically oh, in Manhattan, okay. um, at least with, you know, the initial influx of, of restaurants and it becoming popularized. Um, so I, I grew up on 70th and Broadway. There was a restaurant which, you know, is long since closed called uh, Sushi Dan, which, um, you know, I'd go to quite a bit with my, my parents and I always wanted to try, you know, salmon eggs or octopus or just kind of pick. You and know, how old were you when you were in this experimental? This was around like five or six. I mean, I was wow. always just going out to the restaurants with my parents, even at a young age. And I was behaved enough to not, you know, throw a tantrum at the table <laughs> and just seemed kind of comfortable in that environment, I guess, early on. But, um, you know, flash forward 25 odd years and it just kind of makes sense full circle and 
Um, were you a good kid, or were you just a? I was a huge pain in the ass. Yeah, I got <laughs> I got sent away to boarding school, and I, uh, you know, <laughs> caused all sorts of shit. Yeah, you know, cl- classic overmedicated uh, ADHD case, and um, <laughs> bouncing off the walls, something and like, like that. You know, forks and electrical outlets and things like that. You know. <laughs> like we got to do something with this kid. That's right. Um, which ended up being you know send him away for high school. <laughs> but, <laughs> and did yeah. you go to school in New York College as well? Uh, I went to Hunter for a time. I, I didn't okay. graduate, and um, I started working in restaurants pretty pretty rapidly right. from landing back in. In New York, I uh, I love Hunter. Um, some some great writers come out there as well. That's right. Did you ever read uh, Let the Great World Spin? I have heard of that, but I've not uh, read it. I call him I forget his last name, but a really fantastic book. It's uh, all about uh, one day, uh, the day that the uh, the famous documentary Man on Wire, the guy who mm-hmm, walked sure. across the uh, between the towers, and, uh, and then it's around it, everyone's life and that day. That happened to be in the background, but it's in the background of all these really cool stories. Highly recommend it. Really, really, really uh, super cool book. Uh, So native New Yorker. uh, And uh, and so then you you, give me the climb because you worked at like Bettany. You worked at uh, um, Dave Boulay. You worked with, I mean, you worked in like really cool kind of French kitchen. So tell me like your experience with it. How do you get in? Because that's a a climb. That's a pecking order. It it took a while for sure. I mean, I I, I studied film at Hunter while I was still there and I I worked in film, you know, after I stopped going to school and was just, you know, getting these random gigs on Law and Order and 30 Rock and, you know, was landing on some good shows, but you know, in a PA role and, you know, what, you know, fire watch the, the equipment while the rest of us eat lunch sort of thing. It wasn't anything too glamorous or, or far up the ladder. Um, and like most people studying film at some point, you have to supplement it with an additional source of income, which, you know, ended up being restaurants for me. Um, that started with, um, you know, the City Club Hotel was actually a couple of years before I started getting serious about restaurants. It was just a, a random summer gig, but um, I started as a, a busser and a back, um, you know, a bar back at uh, Bella Blue Ristorante on 70th and Lexington, okay. which is a you know, old Italian staple of that, that area of the city. Um, and then I realized if you become a food runner, you could make a little more money than being a busboy. So I ended up at Quality Meats for a year, just, okay. um, yeah. you know, whipping steaks up and down three flights mm-hmm. of stairs and pumping 600 covers a night. Um, and then I ended up at uh, Park Avenue Bistro while it still existed, and that was my first server position. Although the place was just like a ghost town. And um, let's but jump I, back one second on your film. Favorite film about food or restaurants? <coughs> Oof, it's a tough one. Um, come back to that. I actually don't know off the top of my head. <laughs> I'll go Big Night for me. Okay. I love Stanley Tucci. I love that movie. I th- um, there's a great scene at the very end of it where him and his brother have, after fighting and the restaurant's going to collapse, and there's a scene where they're just eating, he cooks eggs, and they just sit there and they don't talk. Right. It's, it's, it's brilliant. You, sh- you have to see it. <laughs> I'll, I'll uh, make sure to check that out. Um, so then you're, you, so you're, you realize that two things happen. You have a lot of energy, obviously. Um, yes. <laughs> and it's, it's a great uh, restaurant business. I think it requires a lot of energy, particularly, like you said, doing 600 covers, running them downstairs. But 100%. not just that. The, the focus... Uh, on to be really good to well you're at Nagasawa now you worked at some of the best you know what your game has to be like you do have to know food you have to know service you have to know wine beverage even the most like basic person there has a very great working knowledge but then you're above that so so where does the the real love and like desire like I'm gonna make this my career uh, and I just love this business when's the first moment you're like you know what I'm going to stay with this. I dig it. So um, after Park Avenue Bistro, I, I ironically went to um, so I went to Barbalude for brunch a lot with my grandmother, which when I was growing up was actually the candy store that I went to on the way to Ethical Culture around the corner. It used to be oh. called uh, Hadley's. It was like a little breakfast spot. Um, so I spent a lot of time in that place over the years, you know, oh. between work and personal life. But 
um, while I was working at Barbaloo between 2010 and 12 with uh, Michael Madrigal. Um, sure. you know, he kind of made wine something that was lovable for me and that you know, his example you know, at the time was you know, be on point, be very detail-focused, know exactly what you're talking about and be well-informed, but also have this kind of you know, blue-collar approachable side to how you, you convey it. Yeah. Um, and that, that clicked with me you know, using Dave Chappelle references as um, you know, stand-ins for the Grand Cruiser Burgundy and oh, things that's like fantastic. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it was this, this really cool like highbrow, lowbrow yeah. um, take on, on something that can be very pretentious and requires a lot of you know, informational detail and, mm-hmm. um, and pursuit. So um, we, had, you know, at the time, and it still exists to this day. There was a program at Bar, Bar- Balloon called uh, the Panier, which was the large format oh, pour, right. and they that still was do it. really oh. the, um, the for you know, as far as I know, the the first place that really put it on the map. With you know, especially um, you know Michael's social media take on it, and always you know tweeting out or putting on Instagram what the the pour of the night was, and you know popularizing that side of, of things. But yeah, I think uh, if people can still sign up for it if they go on their website. I get I get a heads up because. You know, if they're pouring something fantastic out of large bottles, I'll pop up there. Yeah, my exactly. buddy Joe Robitaille used to be the wine director, I think, following Michael or maybe a couple after. I, I gave him a hand when he was first uh, starting out before he oh, took yeah. Nakazawa. I was uh, floating around Dynex for a yeah. couple months. Yeah, I love Joe. Um, but so in with those Magnum pours, which were basically just pouring incredible either cult Cabernet from Napa Valley or <clears> you know, <throat> Burgundy with maturity or some old Rhone or, or whatnot, uh, I was just able to taste such incredible rare wines in, in such a rapid um, you know, time period and, and in that start building a context for it. So uh, the first one for me, which was a real aha moment, was a 99 Clap Cornas out of, uh, out of Magnum, which wow. was just like, sure. I was like, oh, this is what complexity means and just soul and, you know, that you just stick your nose in the glass and it's something completely different moment to moment. And uh, that was the first real, like, you know, grippy by the tie sort of moment for me. Right. Um, I find that everybody in our business has at least one bottle that they know, oh, that got me into wine. I, right. I, I, I had a sip of it. I had a smell of it. And, you know, it's like you know, it. the sun was coming to the window and the, the trumpets were playing. And I'm like, I love this. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, do. So that was that the wine for you? That, that was the <laughs> wine. And then that led me just deep down the rabbit hole of, you know, the Rhone Valley and just loving the shit out of Syrah, which I still do to this day and would be, you know, my desert island varietal if, uh, if I had to pick one for red. Oh, cool. Um, hands down, um, Cornos or Cote Roti all day. But yeah, um, I have two pages on my list that are Cornos, and it's not really for our guests. It's just, it's so just it's for something you. nice to flip through. <coughs> for you to have late night. Yeah, um, we do move them every once in a while. But um, yeah, so again, I just got to focus on two regions, and especially with Burgundy, which is, I think, for many people, a starting point, and just in general, a great starting point of learning sure. how typicity works, how one varietal can, over several hundred different, mm-hmm. you know, Ludi or villages, um, do you express know, um, itself differently. Sam Ehrlich? He's the Burgundy buyer, Chamber Street. Uh, uh, I've met him a couple times. He, he came on. He did a he did a pretty masterful job of. Uh, for me, also, I, I love Burgundy and white Burgundy, particularly as my Desert Island wine. More Chablis probably had to go very specific, but he did just an incredible job of like laying it out, like why everyone should like it, and they can still find stuff that's affordable, but how it's for certain like it's almost. Uh, ageism like people like oh it's kind of like yeah my, my dad drinks burgundy right and that's kind of bullshit because like it's like music it's like art there's, there's classics that should never ever go away and i figure burgundy's that for me so i love when somebody comes on and you know says no are you kidding me like you know aligoute is fucking awesome and it's <laughs> affordable or you know like off regions like sherry le bone and you know i mean i i love it because yeah of course there's unicorn wines and or there's unicorn guitars as unicorn cars like you know the, and we'll talk about the sake uh sure. coming up but um so where'd you go after barbalude 
So uh, Barbalud was for two years, and then I ended up at Boulay, um, thinking I was either going to become a SOM or a, a captain, and then <coughs> finding out very quickly that I was going to be a back server, and um, just getting put through the uh, the French grinder for six months, and actually I, I was fired at, at the end of that tenure. And um, wow. what did you get fired for? Uh, I got fired. So I, at the time, and this was you know because of Barbalud, I really liked collecting all the you know old bottles or magnums right. or things like that. And there was um, there was a PDR one night. Um, and you know, Adrian, the wine director, he was out of town, actually getting married in France at the time. So you know, I didn't have anyone there to really like stick up for me or anything. But so a private dining room, just with people PDR. Yeah, yeah and they, right. um, it was a Rhone dinner, and they um, one of the bottles was a '78 uh, Jaboulet um, Hermitage La Chapelle, Oof. and yeah. I literally pulled this bottle out of a recycling bin with you know maybe two fingers worth of sediment with wine in it, and just you know <laughs> didn't think twice about it, and started walking out the door. And the uh, the service director who you know, for sure had it out at me at the time because I didn't know fine dining like that and just kind of got thrown into it. Um, caught me at the door and was like, you're stealing, you're fired. And it was like, oh, it, that's fucking bullshit. Yeah, um, which he came around to a, a week later, or a month later when he like offered me my job back and I was like, I'm not into it. Thank yeah. you anyway. Um, then I ended up in commerce uh, for a year. Um, that was my first dedicated sommelier position. I'll tell you my funny uh, som. I was working at Jams with Jonathan Waxman. Okay. So I was like, your age. Long time ago, <laughs> right. and uh, the psalm there was a really well-known kind of psalm guy at the time uh, named Tyson Tinsley. And at the end of the night, I was just doing my side work and just kind of putting stuff away. And and uh, I I went to dump. There was like a half a glass or something, and I, and he was just like yelled at me. And I thought kind of the opposite. He's like, "What the fuck are you doing? Like we drink great wine at the end of the night." I was <laughs> like, right. "Oh," and so that kind of started started me on the kind of journey that you are. Like I'm drinking you know at the time I was you know late 20s and couldn't afford anything like this but I was drinking old Bordeaux right. and Burgundy and like man this is fucking and all of a sudden got my wheels kind of spinning but uh, I think it's good for you you didn't take the job back it's like fuck off I thought so and I have a, you know bided my time on it so I was at Commerce for a straight year and then um, the, literally to the day of the year I was there um, Adrian called me and offered me a gig at Boulay as a Somme which was what I wanted all along so mm. Um, that you know was a cool kind of full circle uh, rise out of the ashes moment. But sure. um, also, also, I think it's pretty cool because when I first met you, well, I met you the second time I met you. You were speaking French with like a total French accent. I and so I said, oh shit, Dean is actually French. Uh, and then, mais, uh, un peu. <laughs> <laughs> but I was, I was laughing as you were saying. No, I was just so tired of getting my ass kicked and i have a friend also who learned french the same way so like i was getting i was i was cooking pans were being thrown at me and they were right. swearing at me i'm like fuck i'm gonna learn what they're yeah, saying about me that boule was that experience I and mean, it was just like you know it was mogadishu with white tablecloths basically but right. you know <laughs> i remember getting like my hand shaken at tables because my silverware isn't crossed the right way and right. you know it's a uh, bill's character to say the least but, but but there is true like you're an outsider too in those very french oh yeah no i mean it was um, speak you're like it was a very, I mean, everyone had, that worked at Boulay had been there for anywhere between five and 10 years and were just, you know, part of the museum. But um, you basically had a, a group of the Mexican guys, a group of Dominican guys, a group of French guys, and then like my, you know, pasty Jewish ass in the middle of all of it. And <laughs> it was, so it was like, who the fuck is that guy? Yeah, I don't know if the Chris Rocks get this, but he's like, watch out for the one outlier because he's done something there in their respect. But, um, <laughs> but. So, so, um, but I guess like, that's, that's, incredibly admirable i mean you speak so fluent now did you take classes was it did an immersion course did you uh, i um i'd studied it in high school and that was really my only formal educational experience <laughs> trying to learn languages and um, i really picked up a lot working in in restaurants um right. you know by necessity to some extent but also just using it as a, a jumping off point and you know i have a, a french lady at home which helps fill, fill in the gaps sure, for, uh, for no better bit. way to learn yeah that's right um 
but yeah, I've, I've picked up, you know, at least conversational Spanish, you know, r- restaurant and wine focused, German, a little bit of Bengali as well. From Always the cuss words first? Of course. Yeah, sure. you gotta, you got to learn all the things <laughs> they're saying behind your back, you know, you cover your ass. But. <laughs> uh, so tell me how you ended up um, getting the job at uh, Nagazawa. So, um, so after Boulay, I was there for just short of two years, and then... Um, I randomly got offered, it was for uh, for Acme actually, one of the, the former chefs from Barbalude was um, taking over the reins there and, you know, they were looking for a new wine director. So, um, you know, my name just came up for an interview, I ended up coming in and that just sort of got the wheels turning like, oh, maybe, you know, I can take the next step and, and move into being a buyer from a floor som. And um, like a week later, there was an ad for, excuse me, um, for Bettany having an opening at the position. and. Um, Amen had actually come in to to commerce, you know, a couple times, and I'd just known him through through the industry, and um, you know, ended up just shooting over an email and being like, hey, you know, my name is Dean, blah blah, blah. and he was like, oh, hey, Dean, you know, blah, you know um, come in for an interview, and um, after a little bit of back and forth, I started there, um, which sadly that restaurant just closed super suddenly and unexpectedly. It, it really was yeah. um, really special place, and you know, still talk to ninety percent of the people that that work there. They're still like family. Um, but <clears throat> so did a four, the last 14 months that, that Bettany was around and then um, I'd really been working straight for 10 years since that so I you know I took a little time off uh, Raj at, at Dynex needed you know some coverage in a few of the restaurants so I was the um, the beverage director at DBB's for Modern for two months yeah, it's um, a cool place, yeah. yeah super fun restaurant and also great staff um, and then you know floor somming at Barbalude and Bulutsud and DBGB and just kind of helping where needed for a few weeks but that was that was a finite tenure um, and then I made a pit stop at La Compagnie for, you know, six weeks sure. helping Caleb out. And, you know, I've just been exhaustively interviewing. So you just worked nonstop. Basically. Um, or when you're not for, working, you're working. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of hardwired for, for the New York yeah, days, yeah, I guess. Yeah. But, um, you know, perpetual motion keeps keeps you going. So we'll have, we're going to take one quick, because, you know, it's it kind of, uh, we're doing a, a taste off here. Sure. I, I brought wine. You said, well, I'm going to bring something too. So I always match uh, the person I try to as closely as possible. So. Uh, this is uh, Roberto Enrique's uh, uh, Molino del Ciego, and it's uh, from Itata, so the southern part of Chile, way down in the south, is like right by Bio Bio. And it's a semillon uh, and, uh, and basically a little uh, uh, chasselas that they call Cortino there. And a super old vine done in these old school barrels that the, the indigenous are there. They've been growing wine there for 500 years. These are 100 year old vines, and this wine is unique, it's an outlier. And it's brilliant, and that's what your personality is. <laughs> so, well, I'm flattered. So cheers thank to you. you. Um, Sante. Yeah, Sante. Come by. Mm. Mm. I love that wine. It's delicious. Yeah. So I knew, because um, we talked about sake a little bit before, that uh, you'd, you'd probably bring some sake. We chatted, and I thought, well, I'm going to bring something that is as savory and is interesting and complex in flavor that would go great with sushi. And I think about this wine when I do have sushi. Um, and it's considered an orange wine, um, but it just like defies all the other shit. I think it's just a very cool beverage. No, it, is, it is very singular. Yeah. And we were you know, chatting, got a little preview sip earlier that um, it's a particular piece. We do a uh, big fin reef squid with shiso leaf and sour plum, which is a very classic mm-hmm. um, Japanese pairing in terms of those, um, those flavor combinations. And um, in the wine, I mean, there's there's soft texture, which I think would match the squid. There's a little bit of that umami from the skin contact that would play right. off soy. There's that menthol quality from the chasala, which um, I think would work with that shiso leaf and still acid to play off the, the ume. So, I mean, 
Um, I'm with you in, in short. Yeah. Actually, the owner of uh, T. Edward Tom Burns actually found this, found Roberto Enriquez at a tasting uh, and fell in love with the wines. His reds are equally as like compelling, uh, like okay. old vine. Yeah, it's, not a, it's not a corner of the planet I usually drink around. So No, uh, I know. Same, same either. Me either. Intrigued. And that's why. I mean, most of the stuff is like Bordeaux wannabe or, you know, something that's kind of misses uh, by, a, by a mile. So um, tell me, like, so you're at Nagazawa. And you've worked in classic French uh, restaurants that are considered the best, the temples, food temples in New York. Um, what are the comparisons you draw from a French kitchen to working with someone like um, Nagazawa? It's um, definitely polar opposites. I mean, a restaurant is a restaurant, and mm -hmm. when it's you know it's work time, you get busy and you you do the physical thing. But um, I mean, French kitchens are notorious for having at least, you know, a loud sort of um, military brigade, brigade sort of feel to them in terms of their operating structure. And, you know, first of all, we're not doing hot food, so there isn't even a range or that sort of, um, you know, arrangements or anything. But a, a big part of our restaurant is the interaction between the chefs themselves and, and the guests. And um, especially how we've, we've pivoted our steps of service with COVID, um, you know, the, the chefs are completely detailing every piece and we're essentially maintaining the... Uh, you know the, the bits and pieces of service that, that keep everything moving so um i would say just from an interaction standpoint it's very different i would say the tone is very different and that you know you're kind of again barking at military orders in a french kitchen right. which for the most part is out of um you know range of the guests either seeing or hearing um everything is on on the stage with with us so it's it's very quiet it's very mechanical um and coordinated and um, the chefs are just as much of an integral part of um, sure. the guest-facing part of service as, as we are as uh, a dining room staff. So g give everybody just a, uh, the three-minute uh, story of Nagazawa. <clears throat> sure. So, um, so chef, chef Daisuke Nagazawa apprenticed for Jiro Ono, who um, until this past year was the oldest uh, three Michelin star chef on the planet for Tsukiyobashi Jiro in, um, in Roppongi, Tokyo. Mm -hmm. um, he only lost that third star because they no longer take public uh, reservations, which is one of the requisites. But they, oh. they still they only just take care of their you know, longstanding regulars, from what I understand. Um, but after working in Japan for him for over a decade, he ended up moving to Seattle briefly um, and, and working in a, a sushi restaurant. And then our owner, Alessandro Borgagnon, who um, you know, also is a native board New Yorker, um, at that time mostly had kind of red sauce Italian joints in, in the outer boroughs. And um, Nakazawa was featured in you know, a, a well-regarded Netflix documentary, Jiro Dreams of Sushi, where they- Great documentary. Sort of, yeah, it really <laughs> is. And I mean, I think captivated a lot of people in terms of just showing the level of dedication that, that sushi really can merit at its, its highest level. Mm -hmm. um, but Alessandro was watching it, I think, you know, had had a couple beers or, or whatnot, and basically just said to his wife, hey, I'm gonna Facebook message this guy and uh, get him to come to New York and open a restaurant. And- How crazy. Um, it's exactly what she said to him. And lo, right. lo and behold, he did. And, you know, a year and a half or change later, they're they're holding up four stars from, from Pete. So. Um, That's crazy. Yeah, it was kind of a, a very fast process to bring from from New York, and um, yeah, he came out of nowhere. I remember the the review just kind of was was a buzz of New York, and you couldn't get in. You still can't get in. Right. Well, well a little easier these days. A little say. easier these days. Yeah, <laughs> for better or worse. But but uh, how many how many Michelin uh, star sushi places are there in New York City? Do you know? There's a handful. Um, I mean, Ginzo Nadera has two. Ginzo's good. I've been to the, Ginzo, the highest yeah. rated. Um, I don't. Masa still has three, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Um, and then there's a you know a handful of really awesome places at, at one or two. Sushi Na's also I think um, got oh, elevated yeah, yeah. To, yeah. to two stars. Um, but yeah, I think you know 
for quality wise you're really paying for aesthetic of restaurants and you know is the the sushi counter made out of you know authentic japanese oak or not that's been buffed every single day or yeah um i think that is what goes that there's only so much you can pack into fish costs so i think at those those elevated price points um hmm. that's, yeah, that's what you're there's something very spiritual about going to a great sushi place for me yeah absolutely and i, I treat myself and go by myself many times when i'm trying to fight off stress i'm like you there's, know there's no do? better single diner meal than a, a good japanese meal and yeah i agree you know, agree crisp cold beer i think we're going to get to your beverage sir yeah sure <coughs> sorry um, tell you all about it now all right so so you're asking about uh equating between sake and wine at first as well yeah or? yeah i mean i i think um you know uh sake is uh people are intimidated by sake probably more than wine um, I think in a sense uh, because there's, there's not a I mean we're not exposed to it basically uh, but I mean I I am because I'm in the in the beverage business but you know if I go out with people they're like they would never order sake because they're like I have no idea right um so what what did what are we drinking here so this is a, this is a really special bottle from a producer called Takasago which is located in Hokkaido Japan so mm-hmm. it's the the northernmost island a very cold tundra like area during the winter which is when sake is produced because you know, classically, there wasn't temperature moderation technology available, so you basically needed the cold of the winter to, mm-hmm. you know, maintain bacterial influence in your yeast populations and and whatnot. Um, so, coldest area of Japan, um, they have produced what's called a, a shizuku style of sake, mm-hmm. um, a Junmai Daigenjo shizuku. And what that means is that instead of using a direct press on the sake, what they classically do is pack the rice into um, uh, cotton bags and hang it from the ceiling of the brewery and let gravity do all the work and just the natural weight of the bag and the oh. product in it clarify it. Um, so you can think about that compared with wine if you were to do pump overs and you know heavier extraction from skins or mm-hmm. uh, basically do free run and do right. a, a softer, more mm-hmm. gentle and, and gradual extraction. So. Mm-hmm. Um, same idea here. Uh, what they've done and what no other brewery does and what they actually no longer do because the sake is out of production and, and has been for two years is they uh, constructed an igloo in the back of their brewery every single year, um, hmm. which is no longer sustainable because of climate change, at right. least according to them. Um, I also think it's just a pain in the ass and they probably got lazy at a certain point. Um, but they, they do this in the interest of creating just the most you know stable, microbe-free, controlled, uh, you know, setting possible to, to do this drip clarification. So when it was first released, it was all about making just this clean, soft, fresh, elegant, and mm. pleasantly fruity style. But um, it has had two years aging in bottle and um, definitely some savory development there. Oh, yeah, and it's like crazy. Right. So, um, you know, there's kind of like this soft papaya and banana quality to it. Yeah, but then there's you know, like, there's like crazy kind of tropical plum. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah, mango kind of um. sure yeah definitely leans tropical for me although like you know muted and, and not overly ripe um but then there's this kind of like sandalwood and soft steamed rice and just these more you know fragrant umami flavors but then just you know really soft uh, texture and viscosity palette wise and super elegant mouthfeel yeah it, 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 it it's super elegant it's soft it almost has this quietly oxidative note to it um that I that I genuinely really like. Sure, it's that earthy kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, well, looking like hazelnutty, like roasted yeah, hazelnuts. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, they uh, their last production was in in 2018, and they they passed the name Divine Droplets off to another brewery who also does a Shizuku style uh, sake, but 
um, they they don't do the eagle anymore. So these, huh. this is um, I think there's still some of it sitting in in warehouses in in tertiary and secondary markets, but. Um, in terms of New York City, I so think are people hunting this down because it's not made anymore? I don't think there's enough buzz for people to know that it's really a cult item. Um, okay. Or at least this point, because you know it has just a, a singular story, I think, and production method, and it's it special in its own right. Um, but yeah, it's a, for for as far as I know, it's not available in New York City anymore, other than at, at Sushi Nakazawa. And uh, Shizuku is a style of sake that speaks to the the clarification process. Ah. Okay. So it's it's technically it falls under uh, fukuro tsuri. Uh, fukuro is the the cotton bag which you'd pack the you know the the rice and, and juice right. into after it's fermented, uh, and then shizuku speaks to using a, a gravity clarification to to you know filter it through. So not a, a common practice. Not quite. And then in in you know this uh, shizuku method, you have basically three different stages of when they clarify the rice um, and, and the sake. Um, so the uh, arabashiri, which means first run, is mm. basically this you know lightly petillant, very fresh and fruity um, sake. And then you have the nakadori, which is the the middle press, uh, which is the good stuff. And then um, the third part is basically like all the you know the rice tannin and stuff like that they use for either animal feed or um, you know blending into table sake or things like that. Say somebody will make a beverage out of it, right? <clears throat> Sometimes We've seen that uh, happen quite a bit. Which right? is which is what you generally drink on uh, St. Mark Street, which is where I you know first experienced drinking sake yeah. as a seventeen-year-old. So. Yeah, because <laughs> mass-produced sake is kind of like what you're saying is this kind of bulk juice that they just add alcohol to. Yeah, basically, exactly. it's just like, and you get trashed on it. Um, but it's such a, a beautiful. Always the bottles are gorgeous too. Right. I mean, it's just. Uh, it's a it, painted it labels and frosted flowers. Exactly. Yeah. Like, wow. Um, I have to tell you, I went to your cellar. Um, so Dean and I had an amazing conversation last week about sake. And I am I have such a very basic working knowledge of it. And you just started to, my head was started to explode <laughs> about when you were telling me about uh, Super 7 and these like. Right. Uh, An absolute uh, zero. Like highly sought after sakes that I've never even heard of. And, uh, and I was like, no, 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 I've got to get you on the podcast and uh, please can I come up to the cellar and just take a look at some of these bottles because in my mind I knew they would be spectacular and they were gorgeous. And by the way, Nagazawa has a real cellar. You go down and you feel like you're in Europe. You're going right. to flight of stairs and it's a stone room and it's temperature controlled. And um, and you started to show me these bottles and you, I mean, you just want to grab the bottles. I mean, like. Awesome. Um, means I'm doing my job the right way. If, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> so, like, what does this bottle cost in your? At, uh, uh, so this is 220 per bottle. Wow. Okay. Um, Which I would say falls in the, the mid range of our, our quality sake. And is there, like, with so there are sake makers, no doubt, who are trying to make the uh, uh, the DRC, the uh, Romani Conti of sake. I right. want to make the best possible sake in the world and you see like i think piper heitzig the the, the chef de cave uh, went to japan recently he's trying to make his own sake and people are going it's, uh, heaven there. sake which we we work with at the restaurant right. oh is it okay yeah cool. they work with uh, three different breweries across uh, hyogo miyagi and yamaguchi prefecture but uh he, he basically takes their expression of their juice and, and blends it differently uh with separate lots and puts his own twist on it All right it's it's kind of crazy i mean I, I i mean it's why you love beverage it's why i love beverage i'm i i mean everything from anything that's fermented right i mean i love <laughs> kombucha to I, I mean i i will just try everything and anything and i'm really into it for the saviorness and the quality and the anything you can that you can put in the glass and um sake to me is like i when you were we had this conversation literally my head exploded i was like w I, one more time tell me one more time so we're going to run through some of these sakes sure 
Um, because I guarantee you nobody, unless they're like sake geeks, and they are because, and I say that in the most affectionate way, like I'm a wine geek, you're a wine geek. Um, uh, people s- seek these out and they come to you because, uh, let's, well, we could talk about pricing, but like, and, and how limited they are. So let's talk about like Super 7 and then go down from there. Sure. Um, well, so there's Super 7, which I introduced you to, which kind of led the way for the story of just mm-hmm. the, let's say the highest end uh, selections on the list in terms of sake. So Super 7 comes from a brewery called Nizawa, which is located in Miyagi in the, the northeast of Honshu, the main island of Japan. And so, f- so good. It's God, delicious, yeah. right? And yeah. it, it evolves continually. I mean, it'll, it'll lean back into that earthy kind of mushroomy thing and then yeah. back into fruity, but um, one of my favorites. So I'm glad you're, uh, you know, continually to yeah, yeah. it. Um, but so a few years ago, this was actually when I was still working at Boulay, and, you know, we had a sister restaurant, Brush Oak, across the street, which um, also provided, a, you know, a forum mm-hmm. for moving expensive bottles of, you know, of that caliber. Um, it originally came out as Super 9, which spoke to the fact that there's only 9% of the rice remaining. And so um, just to sidebar with sake, um, sake rice or sake mai is different from table rice or what you would eat at home in that uh, all of the starch is concentrated in the center of the granule. And then you have this translucent outer bran, which is, you know, full of amino acids and proteins and lipids and um, things that can, you know, when they're fully there, can inhibit fermentation and present off flavors at, you know, varying stages you have. So the idea really is to mill the outer husk out because that's like protein and fat. Right. As and you that, say, and we'll that give gets it off you, flavor. So exactly. like get it down to the, but if it, I mean, when you talk about the, the size of a grain of rice, it is still the, the image that people have in their head. It's not some bigger, it is the size a size of, of a grain of yeah, rice. It's a grain of brown rice. Um, which is what's <laughs> kind of crazy because we were going to talk about like, so how do you get it down to 7% so, of like, you know? Right. So you're, you're milling it. And the idea is the more of this outer brand you're removing, the more of the shinpaku or pure inner starch you're getting to. And so mm-hmm. to be labeled Junmai Daiginjo, you have to be polished to a, mini, a minimum percent of uh, 50% semi-buai or milling ratio. Um, so that's just the minimum for it. So Super 9 means that they're with taking their starting product and basically discarding 91% of it before you're doing anything else. Mm-hmm. So Super 9 was, you know, the, the benchmark for a little bit. And then I think a year and a half or so later um you know it was uh, super eight and then super seven and super me- seven was was it for you know three years and it was 93 percent of the rice polished off um using a you know singular rice varietal that can withstand that amount of you know temperature and, and polishing without melting or cracking or <coughs> becoming you know misshapen and you know i showed you with super seven they give you a little packet of you know what the rice looks like starting off and what it, it ends up as and at that seven percent semi bua you have these you know tiny perfect little pearls just perfectly white uh, coming from oblong brown rice so that was the benchmark for a while and then uh, Tato Nokawa which is a brewery in um, in Yamagata so that's on the northwest side of, uh, of Honshu uh, they came out with a bottle called Komio or Zenith and that was polished to one percent so again throwing out 99 percent of your your, your rice before you know you're even getting to anything and not that you're um, just polishing it, but you're able to steam the rice without it melting. Uh, you're right. able to cultivate koji mold on it, and then you know again with precision take it to the right degree of alcohol and temperature and residual sugar and and everything and ferment sake out of it. So one percent was then the answer to right. Super Seven, and then Nizawa, who I hear is a pretty competitive guy, he was like, okay, one percent, that's that's the benchmark. Uh, I can do better than that. So. In, um, in Japanese sake label law, you uh, can round down to the nearest hundredth if you're, you're talking about your, your polishing ratio. So um, the example I gave you is you came in at 50.4% on your reading, you can call it 50 on the label, so right. round down. So Niza was like, all right, well, in theory, if I get below 1%, I can call it zero on the label. Wow. So, yeah. so he constructed a, um, a, a custom milling machine that has you know these tiny diamond edges to, to polish and 
Um, it's the same rice varietal as Super 7, but he basically polishes it nonstop for 5,236 continuous hours, uh, which equates to about seven and a half months of just, you know, putting, you know, the rice going up the lever and dink and down and up the lever and dink. Is there a lever? Is it floating? In uh, it's basically on a, it's, it's like a, a, a conveyor, like or, um, a, an elevator that, that chips it over. So again, um, so they, they put it through that process and you end up with a, a milling ratio of 0.85%, um, which you need to look at under a microscope basically to see it. And again, um, not only is that impressive, but they're able to, again, turn it into alcohol, steam. Right. Like, so it steams so it doesn't melt because this thing is teeny. And koji is the fermenting. Uh, Ko- koji is a spore. Um, right. It's a spurgulus orose. It's the same thing used right. to make miso or soy sauce. Um, it essentially con- converts uh, starches into simple sugars that can then be fermented by, um, by yeast. Um, which is what makes sake unique as a, a fermentation process. It's multiple parallel fermentations and that right. you're um, introducing koji to steamed rice. It's inoculated. It converts the starches into sugars. And then uh, simultaneously, you've added yeast, which converts the starch in, or the sugar into um, ethyl alcohol and right. carbon dioxide. That's just absolutely insane. That, right. like, I'd like to see the, like, the outtakes of that. Right. <clears throat> How much I, of I, that rice had just melted? I know it wasn't one job on kill on that for like, sure. Holy fuck. So... A couple things. Do you know anyone that could taste the difference between a Super 7 and Zero? Um, I mean, they're markedly different bottlings, okay. and, that, and that's what's interesting about it. Um, we, I was actually trying because we were moving through a ton of Super 7 for you know a while before we started expanding you know, our, basically our prestige offerings for sake. Um, and we're just doing like crazy volume on it, even for something that, that costs $3,600 a bottle. I was, was going to get to the price of these wines, of these uh, sake. Yeah, so Super 7 is 3600 and I was inquiring with the brewery um, if they had older releases of Super 8 and Super 9, so we could do some sort of side-by-side for, I guess I would be into that, or just, you know, have the, the ability to taste so it myself. What does it taste like? Um, I mean, it's, it's just, incre- like, so Super 7, it has, you know, what, what I like to think about a lot with, with sake is texture and mouthfeel, and... Mm-hmm. Um, kind of think about like waterbeds with the viscosity of how it just rolls across your tongue and has that, right. that weightiness but it's not cloying or, or overly mm-hmm. rich um, and doing so without acidity so um, so Super 7 it has this you know really just voluptuous soft um, texture to it it's insanely layered in terms of how much florality there is of how much fruit content but it's also clean and you know it disappears off your tongue but there's the alcohol is, on these things um mosaki <laughs> falls between 14 and 50 percent 15 percent for at least junmaishu yeah. um you do have genshu sake which means that it's undiluted and that can be anywhere between 17 to 22 percent abv and mm. um you know again as a sidebar sake actually naturally ferments to the highest um abv with you know without being a, a distilled beverage than any other beverage on the planet mm. um to get into that range and then they'll typically cut it down with the same water source used to make it in the first place to get it to you know that more palatable 14 15 range but again you have styles where um you know the the perceivable booziness and the the alcoholic burn that's a a measured you know part of the overall texture and experience of the sake according to the brewer um so it really is i'd say even more so than wine um you need to know it house by house to really right you know know what you're drinking and talking about alcohol does interesting things in wine Uh, and there's lots of wines that if they're high alcohol you detect it and it can be a flaw, but also it adds tension. Right. Um, and that's... Uh, so the same I, idea there. Yeah, right. I, I could see that. But So <clears throat> you have access to these bottles because they're so incredibly limited. Am I right? Uh, very much so. Um, I mean, Super 7, they're producing around 1,000 bottles per year. Um, absolute zero. They only made 300 of them, uh, 200 of which were for the Eastern Hemisphere, 100 of which were for the Western Hemisphere. And we managed to get our hands on around 15 of them wow. out of that 100 um, and actually move them that's, at, that's at $14,000 a shot. 
How much time do you charge for them? Uh, $14,000 for 500 milliliters. So give me the profile of somebody who comes in and drops $14,000 on a bottle of sake. I mean, there's... So these are the sake geeks, I guess I'm talking about, right? I mean, unless they're just, are they just hedge fund guys who just don't give a shit and they're just ordering because it's They're big, actually, or? they're not so much hedge fund guys. Um, they're, they're people from, you know, they definitely have a lot of business ventures going on and, uh, mm. you know, more disposable income than either you or I will likely see in Ever our lifetimes um, yeah. or, you know, maybe everyone that we work with that right. we, yeah. we'll, we'll see. Um, but so that's the thing. I mean, it's, you know, for me, I've, I've, and I'm sure you have as well, you know, you, you know, think about for wine, DRC is kind of that benchmark of what's that expensive, sure. that rare and that exclusive. And, you know, you and I both tasted them. They're fantastic, special, right. singular wines, but would you ever pay that much money for it based on what your, you know, context of money is? So right. for some of these guys, if you're, you know, you're in the 10 plus figure income range or, you know, net worth range, I mean, the difference between a hundred dollars sure. a bottle and fourteen thousand dollars a bottle is inconsequential. But sure. um, that said, again, you know, demand is is really the thing, and we are getting access to bottles of sake where we're sometimes the only restaurant in the country, if not this side of the planet, that has it. Are these repeat customers? Like for, for sure. And I mean, we we had a few of them that were there when I first started, but um, we've you know I don't want to call them like a pot of whales at this point, but you know when we were pre-COVID, you know, we'd had at least one or two of these guys coming in on a, a weekly basis and. Um, you know, what else do you have? What's new? You know, what's the new... Do they share? Exciting shit. Oh, yeah, of course. They're you know, I, it seems to be you'd want to share this, you know? It's it's one of those things that, I mean, look, you know, it, we all work in a business at the end of the day, and we're in a capitalist country, and, and money does matter. But um, despite what these people are spending, they're lovely human beings. They care about our staff. We we are all on a first-name basis. And, oh, that's cool. It's good to um, hear. Yeah, and, you know, aside from the fact that it looks great for numbers and the tipped employees' pockets... Um, you know, we're really just providing something unique and special and that, um, again, you just don't find anywhere on the side of the ocean um, other than our little mm. West Village Street. So I know it's a it's an incredibly special place for sure. Um, and then if you. Yeah, I mean, I guess you call them sake hunters, you know, who right. no doubt are calling and looking and finding out where they can do it. I mean, if I had the, that kind of disposable income, I'd be looking for the best sake. Just I, I'm a, I, you know, I'm Last year or so, mezcal's become my like Jones. I totally love mezcal. Me too. Um, too and much. like, yeah, it's just and it's the same, really kind of same concept. It's these are kind of real artisanal craft, you know, beverages that are like amazing. You know, like, um, you know, the reeds, you know, from around, you know, the the, the countryside are, are is what uh, they hollow out to run the water into the stills and. Right. Yeah, the, the the stone mills that they're using for the uh, it's, and it's very similar, um, and I I think um, and it shows in the beverage. It really does show in the beverage for yeah. sure. And I would say just to bring it around to you know my love for for the Rhone Valley and you know Cornos is that you know everyone there is doing this dirty farmhouse winemaking and yeah. it's you know the the ambient yeast and just everything about your singular natural climate as a, a producer is factored into the flavor and the expression of what you're making and. Yeah. Um, and there's so much, I mean, for how, you know, modernized Japan is and, you know, how much technology they're known for. I mean, there are breweries that actively choose not to use any of it and just do stuff like they were doing in the 1800s. And yeah, how cool is that? that's how their, their sake tastes and yeah. that's what they want to do. And but it, it's nice to have two different versions or yeah, for sure. pictures of what, what people are doing in, in a country with uh, their, their beverage. I think it's a very cool thing. It's kind of like what we do here. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I'd say... You know, I'd say at this point, having worked where I've worked and the access that I've had to the wines that I've had and, you know, sold what I've sold, that um, it's, you know, it's always nice to move bottles in that price range, but that's not anywhere close to what the draw is for me anymore. And I'd say especially with sake and, 
you know, coming into it with about 10 years and, you know, wine experience before working with it at this level. Um, it's just as exciting to get a hold of that, like one of 100 bottles that's, you know, baller as fuck. And yeah. you know, I'm going to yeah. price out on the list in the five figure range, but also to, you know, find these just like little new producers or this next generation of the brewery is like changing everything that the last five have done. And mm-hmm. um, I think there's a lot more just innovation and um, willingness to break with tradition at the same time. So, you know, a lot of my favorite bottles on the list are in the 150 range, honestly, yeah. and they're just the coolest and most interesting and have, you know, the, the most, you know, I'll, t- I'll tell you what's story. cool about you. When, when we were talking about sake, your eyes dilated like a crackhead. You were so fucking happy to be talking about sake. There's an obvious love for it. Um, so give me your under the radar restaurant that you love to go to. You and your girlfriend, you hide away. You know that you, that you can recommend for somebody listening. Under the radar. Um, I mean, we both. So my girlfriend's from Paris, but she also spent a couple of years in Florida and spent a few of those years bartending. So mm. she definitely has, you know, like I said, that that highbrow, lowbrow thing going I love on. It. Yeah. Um, but. We were, um, you know, we just moved to East Harlem, but we were living on the Upper West Side, and there's um, this spot, Moon, Moonrise Izakaya on 100th and Amsterdam, which, okay. you know, nothing's great about the food, nothing's great about the beverages, but it just feels like that's good, good enough and shitty enough, and um, a great neighborhood hang. So that that was, you know, we're, we're both pretty, um, you know, not homebodies, but we definitely stick with our to our neighborhoods and yeah. you know, are, are those kind of people, but. Um, I was also living in the East Village before all that, and Sushi Bar Satsuko is, you know, if it wasn't further downtown, and um, I don't been, I'm hoping they're actually still open, but um, killer menu, killer constantly rotating sake oh, cool. selection, um, you know, hip hop and metal playing all night long, and um, a lot of their their bartenders were just like, you know, Japanese fine dining dropouts who just wanted to have something more of that. That's fucking cool. That shit. speed, so you always get an excellent experience. You're always tasting something cool. You can. You know, either like geek out on you know rap music or sake or just. What's your favorite rap? I mean, I've. So you asked me earlier what my my pump up music is. I yeah. mean, what, it's, you, what are you listening to when you when you get pumped up? I've been listening to like Brooklyn Drill in the last like three months, okay. which which is just like the most gutter intense like hard banging <laughs> rap that's that's out there right now. But um, I don't know. I, I grew up in New York City, and you know, even it's in as, your blood, man. As, as, You're a a white, as a white Jewish guy from the Upper West Side, I still like listen to <laughs> to rap from a very early age and. Um, you know, make <coughs> look at the Beastie Boys, right? Yeah, right. Jewish boys from Brooklyn. Actually, um, but I mean, I, I listen to a little bit of everything. I mean, I, I love the, the '70s era of funk and, and soul. Oh, and I love it. Yeah. So here's here's my um. So we're at the part of the show where I I, I always I, I throw my my questionnaire at you. So uh, for you, I'm going to say um, you're going to decide to commit Harry Carey or seppuku. <laughs> Uh, because somebody hated your pairings and it you felt so dishonored you're like fuck it I'm gonna end my life so you get to pick your meal you're gonna have your last last thing you're gonna eat last thing you're gonna drink and the piece of music you're listening to as your sword is gutting you and you're passing and your eyes are closing you're leaving the planet so what are you eating what are you drinking and what are you listening to um, I'm list- I'm <laughs> I think I'll be eating at Takashi uh, which is uh, unfortunately, closed over the summer due to COVID. Um, but that it's a Japanese uh, Korean fusion restaurant like Yakiniku. Okay. Um, and it they basically did just nose to tail, but with you know like Pat Lafreda and Creekstone and like all the best beef you know vendors in the country. So cool. it was just nose to tail, like you know fr- fresh liver and tongue tastings and different tastings of stomach and things like that. So. Uh, that was my favorite restaurant, and that's where I would go again if uh, if it ever came back into existence. Okay. And what would you be drinking? 
1990 Noel Versailles Cornas. Oh, fuck. I love it. You went to vintage and everything. Because normally you have to even, even wine people to prod it out of like, what vintage? Well, n- 99 Clap got me into Cornas, and then 90 Versailles uh, set the, the mark for the best Cornas I'll never taste ever again. Cool. So, All right. And what piece of music are you listening to as your eyes close and you're leaving this planet and you're saying goodbye? What are you listening to? Uh, Layla by Eric Clapton, but the slow version. The, oh, acu- the, acoustic, the acoustic version. Oh, yeah. very fucking cool. Very, very cool. Just popped into my head, but it felt right. I love it. So uh, I'm going to come see you. I know you're heading to a pop-up in uh, Aspen. Yes. Soon. I'm, uh, um, I'm going to try to catch you. for a, oh, a city I, that may shut down as soon as I get there. So no, we'll see how it goes. Uh, <laughs> I, then I'll have to catch you probably when you get back. But I implore everybody to go see Dean uh, and get his sake recommendations. And the sushi is just oh, I appreciate that. And uh, you know where to come find me. So. Cool. Uh, thank you for being on DOTJ Podcast, Drinking on the Job. Thank you for having it. me. And... Uh, I'll see you at the bar. Yes, chef. All right. Cheers. Cool. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar.